We're continuing our series today on spiritual warfare. We've been talking about the fact that we're living in a, a day of battle, a day of war, not in the, not in the physical realm, although that keeps threatening everywhere we turn around, but basically a spiritual war. Last Sunday, we, we uh, didn't quite finish, and we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday, um, talking about being aware, not alarmed, being aware of what, what our enemy, Satan, can do and does. Be aware, but don't be alarmed, because even though Satan has been granted certain powers to do certain things, God is all-powerful, and God is sovereign. And to always remember that Greater is he that is in me, greater is he that is in you, than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit of God inside of us is the most powerful force and presence and person of the universe, and he is inside of us. So we have nothing to fear. Last Sunday, we looked at the fact of uh, what, what God allows Satan to do. Uh, he tempts us, he accuses us, he can bring physical attacks, he can delay answers to prayer. We talked about obvious signs of satanic activity as well as subtle signs of that. And we just started on the weapons of our warfare. And we're going to continue that part of it today, uh, the weapons of our warfare. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9, it says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, okay, the Bible talks about our enemy, the devil, our, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In other words, we're in good company, okay? All over the world, we're all dealing with the same kinds of things. How do we resist? How do we stand firm and how do we do battle? That's what we're wanting to look at as we go through this series. We started last, last Sunday by talking about our weapons, and we're going to spend most of today talking about our weapons of, our, of warfare. The first one we talked about, and, we, and I just want to review, um, was the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. In Acts 16, 16 through 18, it says, and this was in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul was out. They were doing ministry. and says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and said, and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so troubled, he turned around and said to the spirit, he was an evil spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. That was an example of the name of Jesus being used to cast out a spirit or a demon, someone who is demonized. And of course, what a lot of people think is that the name of Jesus is some kind of formula. Um, and the interesting part of this passage, two, two chapters later, uh, we see that there were some sons called the sons of Sceva who, uh, who were priests in the Jewish church back then. 
And they said they wanted to do the same thing. They noticed that if you use the name of Jesus, you could control these demons and cast out demons. And so they said in Acts 19, they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we command you to leave. And the, the demon actually spoke to them and turned and said, Jesus I know, Peter I know, but who are you? It was not a formula. Sometimes we think we just use this formula, the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not a formula. It's an established relationship of authority. Okay, let me say that again. I said this last Sunday. The name of Jesus is not a formula. It's an established relationship of authority. Now, our authority was lost when we sinned, but our authority was reestablished when Jesus died and he was buried and was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Then Jesus gave us that spiritual authority based on our relationship with Jesus. Gave us that authority. On the basis of our relationship to Jesus, under his lordship, we operate under his authority and his kingdom. So when we use the name of Jesus, it's based on the fact that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and we have his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We're granted authority and we use his authority as his representative. And by that, we declare in the name of Jesus. And that gives us the power. Now, I gave the illustration about conducting a wedding. When I conduct a wedding, I, when we finish all the great music and the processional and get ready to, uh, to bring the couple together, I make this announcement. I have them join their right hands and I say, by the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel in the state of Wisconsin, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now that pronouncement actually makes them husband and wife. It actually makes them husband and wife. Along with the marriage license and the legal parts of that agreement. Now, and I stated, I said, anybody can run around and talk to, grab couples and say, I pronounce you husband and wife, I pronounce you husband and wife, I pronounce you husband and wife. You can do that all you want to. It doesn't make them husband and wife because you're not under the authority of the state of Wisconsin with a marriage license. What makes that happen and become official is the legal ramifications and the legality of being husband and wife under the authority. So when we use the name of Jesus, we don't just run around saying, in the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. We have to be under his authority, under his legal authority. In the name of Jesus, it's relationship, it's the lordship, and the submission under Jesus Christ. And when we are in that relationship and submission to Jesus Christ, yes, we do have the power to use the name of Jesus. It's one of the ways that we exercise the authority that Jesus has given us. So the first weapon that we talked about was the name of Jesus. The second weapon is the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Revelation 12, 10 to 11 says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Why? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. We'll talk about the testimony in a minute. They overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb. By the shedding of the blood of Jesus and his death, there's forgiveness of sins. Now, the blood is not a formula either. 
The reason I have that power is because my sins are paid for. When Jesus died and shed his blood, we accept that sacrifice, then our sins too are paid for. That means the power of sin over me is broken. That means legally I am free. So when we accept Jesus Christ and accept his sacrifice, the blood shed for us, we become legally free from the power of the enemy, from the power of Satan. There's nothing he can accuse me of. I'm forgiven. I'm washed clean. It's as if we are perfect in God's sight. So by his death, by the blood of Jesus, we're set free. And the weapon we use, not only the name of Jesus, but declaring the blood of Jesus to live in its reality. And through that, we overcome. Okay? So it's through the name of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. And the, the third one that we have, letter C, is our testimony. Our testimony. We have, if we've come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we've been transformed. We've been changed. My life was changed by Jesus. I'm a new creation. Whoever's in Christ is a new creation. And that is a weapon we can use, our testimony. I've been born again. The old is gone, the new has come. And sometimes we need to declare it and say, Satan, I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. You have no power over me. Declaring it, that's your testimony, your changed life. You are transformed. So the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and the power of our testimony. Those are powerful weapons that nobody can argue with, and we can stand on that when we're fighting against the enemy. Then there's letter D, the Word of God. The Word of God. Many of you remember the, uh, the passage in Luke 4 where, where Jesus was tempted of the devil. He was taken out and he was tempted. And his response, his response, and here's the Son of God, okay? What is his response to the devil personally? It was, he quoted scripture. He said, it is written. Twice he said it is written. It says, he said once. So basically he took scripture and he countered the enemy. It's critical that we understand that when we're countering the enemy, we have to have at our disposal the word of God. There's no temptation taken you, but such as his common demand, he will give you a way to escape. Quote scripture. Quoting scripture, the word of God. It is written. If Jesus used scripture... We got to use it. If we got it, we're going to use it, we better know it. And you might need to memorize it because your temptation or your circumstance may happen and you don't have a Bible right handy. So just, just a minute, Satan. I'm going to read something to you. No. Ingest it. Have it in your heart. Know it. Memorize it so you know the Word of God. Prayer. We're going to talk about prayer. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about prayer. We're going to finish the, this about it because prayer is the other other one. Fasting. Fasting. The story we looked at in Daniel 10. Daniel prayed a prayer. He had had this dream and a vision and he wanted to know what the answer was. So he prayed and he took like 21 days to fast and pray. Now, I don't know how many of you fast. Okay, Some of you say, I try to avoid that. <laughs> fasting. Now, let me just, I, we could do a whole teaching on fasting. Fasting is giving up something temporal, uh, something in the physical realm, so we can concentrate on the spiritual, okay? In other words, you may give up some food, you may give up breakfast, you may give up watching TV, you may give up certain things. And it's not just fasting, it's fasting to release you to pray and spend time in God's presence. 
And a lot of people will take time to fast. There's a whole, a whole teaching on fasting. You, you need to do it correctly, especially as your body gets older. It's, it's harder to fast the older you get, but that's okay. Fasting is a way that we deny ourselves in the physical realm to concentrate on the spiritual. And fasting, Daniel fasted for 21 days. And then he prayed at the time of that. After that, God answered. It was pretty amazing. Then there's something called praise, letter G. Praise. And I want to read, read a passage from 2 Chronicles 20. 2 Chronicles 20. This, the instance here, Jehoshaphat was the king of Israel, and, and he had these enemies coming against him. And his Jerusalem was surrounded by the enemies coming against him. And he said this, basically when it came to verse 17, the prophet Jehaziel, a prophet came to him, and he said to him, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face him tomorrow, and the Lord will face you, will be with you. And they went through this process, says, have faith in the Lord and you will be upheld. Have faith in the prophets. You will be successful. So after consulting the people, now you're surrounded by an army. Some of you know this, this story. And so what do you do? He said, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as he went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures. So he, he didn't take his best, his special forces. He took his worship team. said, you get to go. Now, if you did that, we'd have a lot fewer people wanting to be on the worship team or singing in the church choir or whatever. This is what he did. He said, we got a problem here, and so we're going to send out the, the praisers or the worship team. And they did. They did. Now, these must have been courageous people to sing praise and worship because it says... As they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Praise. Now, some of you, most of us probably think we come together to sing and praise in worship because it's fun to sing and we like to sing together and it's a nice corporate experience and it lifts our spirits and whatever. It's a lot more than that. When we sing praises to God, we are participating in warfare. Okay? That's one of the things that we must understand. We are setting up these areas of warfare by praising and worshiping the living God. Why does that work? Because Satan is allergic to praise. He can't exist in praise. You praise God, he flees. He wants to get out of there. And, and praise and worship on Sunday morning has all kinds of purposes. We come into contact with the living God. We begin to apprehend who he is. The, the song, the words that we sing, all of them point to God and worshiping and praising him, extolling him, singing about all he's done for us. But in a very real sense, we must understand that we are also doing warfare. And we have got to have congregations and people of God who are in essence, in reality, worshiping and praising God. This isn't just a 
religious exercise and getting together, making us feel good. This has a purpose, many purposes, and one of those main purposes is spiritual warfare. And that's you engaging in spiritual warfare. It's like being a warrior. Think about that. Now we're going to talk about the armor of God. The armor of God. Um, in Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, the, the best-known passage about the armor of God. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, as a reminder, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, that's what's going on. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Are we living in a day of evil? Absolutely. You can stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert always. Keep on praying for all the saints. So what is the armor? What is the armor? What do we need to put on? The first one is truth, which is our belt. It says put on the belt of truth. This is the belt that holds up all the rest of the armor. Without this, everything falls off, okay? You got to have the belt. Got to have the belt, okay? The belt on all other armor rest. This is the realm of the idea, the battleground of the mind. There is a huge battle for truth, and we, we talk about this on occasion, and I, I talk about this occasionally here, talking about the battle for truth. Truth is based on facts, not feelings. If you've looked at our sign recently, we had different things on the sign out there. Most of you come in this way, you don't see it. But it says, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. That's become really a major battle cry in the Christian church and here at Eau Claire Wesley. Speaking the truth with in love. Now, we can speak the truth without love. You know, you can speak a lot of things without love, but you cannot truly love without speaking the truth. Let me say that again. You can say all kinds of truth without love, but you cannot truly love without speaking truth. And our mission and our goal must be speaking the truth. And without truth, all else fails. It all falls apart. Nothing will stand. We have to have truth, speaking the truth. And one of the, some of the biggest issues are right now, there's, there's the gender. Truth or fact or science tells us we are male and female. Two options, determined at conception and birth. That's, that's truth. And we have all kinds of nonsense saying there are many genders. There's a, someone here that has a, has a, a relative 
in a city, I'll say it north, I won't tell where it is. They have all kinds of controversy um, about identifying as many different types of things or animals or whatever. And they've drawn a line in the sand that, and because they've had, they've had kids show up and identify, come to school in the morning, identify as a cat. Say, I'm a cat. And they've sent, they said, well, we educate children here. If you're a cat, go home. They send them home. All H broke loose, all kinds of broke loose. The parents are really upset. Well, how do you, how do you deal with that if you don't have truth? Truth. Truth is there are male and there are female. There aren't any other genders, and they can, they can twist that any which way they desire. And it's determined at conception and birth. And, and I, th- this was inconceivable, inconceivable even three years ago. Who would have thought? 72 genders, 72 genders. And let me tell you something. We need to pray for our young people in school. Because across the street, here even, they have to use, they're, they're trying to get them to use different pronouns and surnames and all kinds of things because they are supposed to deny that they're male or female. It's, it's full of, and, and let me tell you something. We have, in our schools, in Eau Claire school system, we have the pressure to change genders, and we have groomers. And let me tell you something about groomers. Groomers, I believe, are adults that never grew up, and they want to groom children so that they can have some kind of an intimate relationship with a child because they've never grown up and embraced their own sexuality and be able to express it in an adult relationship under God. And we have them. We have administrators and teachers right across the street that are involved in this. This is absolutely abominable. And we have to speak truth. We have spineless and evil people in our administration and faculty, in our school system, grooming children for their own benefit, selfish, evil agendas. Of course, this all started with sexual identity. There's gender, which is truth and science, and Truth. We've got to have truth. Got to have truth. And, and can I say something? I, I have to say, on these issues, there are very few pastors that will even talk about it. They don't want to offend people. They don't want to offend people. And I don't, I don't want to condemn. I don't want to condemn other clergy. There are a lot of people that just want to kind of skate by this and say, we want to love everybody. We can't love without speaking truth. Absolutely cannot. There's a loving way to do it. But we must speak truth. Truth. I've said this before about sexual identity. Talking about sexual orientation. There is no such... Science will tell you there is no such thing as sexual orientation. Sexual orientation. There's only gender. Sexual orientation is a recent construct, okay? You didn't hear about it 30 years ago. Sexual identity is a recent construct to justify perverted behavior. That's it. It's sexual orientation. There's only gender. 
They wanted to justify a behavior, so they began to say, I was made this way. I'm oriented this way. Now, there is, stay with me, there is sin orientation. Okay? Sexual orientation is to justify one particular sin. All of us have sin orientation. I don't want to point the finger and say anybody's worse than anybody else. We all were born in sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have to think clearly in truth. We all have sin orientation. We need to be changed. But I'm not going to say, I have thievery orientation. Or I, I have murder orientation. Or I have this or that. You know, we can take any sin that we... I have gossip orientation. Churches are full of God. We can justify that and say, well, it's just who I am. Well, yeah, we're all sinners. We all have an orientation towards some sin. Sexual orientation toward the, op- toward the same sex is a sin orientation that's been justified by adding a term to it. We cannot add terms. And we take words and we say, we need truth. We've got to have truth. And the truth says, no, sin orientation is common to all of us. But we can't take one sin, give it a label, and then, then justify it. And see, that's where it started. It started with sexual orientation. Now it's gender, 72 gender. It, it just, where's it going to end? It starts with truth. It has to start with truth. Now, how you have this conversation with your friends, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Things are so accepted, they say, Oh, they accept it because it's been stated. Say a lie, a lie many times and long enough over history, people begin to accept it as truth. And we must start with biblical truth. And literally, yes, we need to follow the science. Yeah, now it's the speed of science, but that's, a diff- that's another thing. Follow the science. All have sinned. The Bible tells us that all of us have sin orientation. None of us are righteous. We all need Jesus to forgive us our sins and deliver us from our sin orientation, whether it's pride or lust or perversion, gossip, drunkenness, addictions. It's a change in the human heart that needs the blood of Jesus to change us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A huge battle for truth today. Truth. The belt of truth. If you put your truth away, it all falls off. No armor. The second piece of armor is righteousness. This is a flak vest or, or uh, the armor the, the, that we have, our breastplate, our bulletproof vest. Righteousness. Now, righteousness is simply right relationship with God. Right? And there are two dimensions of righteousness. The first one is righteousness of Jesus upon salvation. When we realize we're sinners and we confess our sins to God, ask Jesus to forgive them, accept Jesus' sacrifice as the only way to pay for them, believe and place our trust in Jesus and his work alone, and we let him take charge, come into our lives, take charge of our life, the Bible tells us we are then justified. We are justified. We are seen as righteous and sinless at that point in time. Justified is a legal term that says you are not guilty. Not guilty, okay? So when we are justified, we receive that sacrifice of Jesus, we are declared not guilty. Not guilty. Clothed in the righteous. And this righteousness 
is available to anyone and everyone. It's not on the basis of what we've done or what we haven't done. We tend to approach God and say, I I guess I'm okay because I haven't done that or I haven't done this or I've done this or that. No, it's not based on what we've done. It's based on what Jesus has done on our behalf to die for us. We come and just lay it down and say, no matter what I've done, no matter what I try to do, I am dependent totally on your forgiveness. That is righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. Then there's, that's, that's past, or that's in our, our past. Then there's holy living now, okay, holy living. If we want to leave a gaping hole in our armor, then we neglect holy or righteous living now. And holiness is internal, it's not external. We can't measure it by what we can see. It's not, I don't do that, and I don't do that. That's measuring holiness by things I don't do, okay? That's legalism. You say, well, I'm a great husband because I don't cheat on my wife. Is that our standard, what I don't do? Some of the have the attitude, how much can I get away with and still be a Christian? Do we practice that in our marriage relationship? How much can I do and still stay married? That's absurd. We'd never do that. The goal of the marriage relationship is to see how close we can grow to our spouse. It's not how much can I get away with and still be a Christian, but how close can I get to God? That's a whole different mentality. Righteousness is right relationship with God. And it's all in the Bible, the Word of God, that He's given us. Righteousness. Righteousness, right relationship with God. Then we have an offensive weapon. It's the gospel of peace. Gospel of of peace, number three. These are our Reeboks or our tennis shoes, the ready to run, running, running shoes. And when he talks about this, he's talking about sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus. See, the best defense is a good offense. We can fight all the stuff that we want to, but if we really want to see lives changed, we share our transformation and share the gospel of peace. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. When people embrace the Christian faith, receive Jesus Christ and their hearts are changed, whole families will change, whole cities will change, whole cultures will change. We've seen it historically. Many of you have experienced that. You've seen it in your families, in your kids. You've seen it in many ways. Historically, there have been numbers of what, what we call revivals in history. There was one in, in, in Wales. It's probably one of the most dramatic changes because the Welsh revival turned a city that was, or an area of the country that was absolutely corrupt and, and evil and perverse. It got rid of They had gambling dens, houses of prostitution, pornography, alcoholism. And they went in there, and when the good news of Jesus Christ spread and people got converted and came to Christ, so many people were converted to Jesus, there was no market left for all that other stuff. That's when true transformation happens. It's important that we fight with truth and righteousness, but we also, the gospel of peace is the good news that we have that people can have a changed life. 
They can embrace Jesus Christ. They can have the change. They don't need all those other things anymore. And when Jesus changes our life and changes their life, cities change, families change, whole cultures change because of that. I, I know we think that the, the solution to all our problems is government or some kind of laws passed. No, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's why we exist as a church. Should we be involved in all those? Yes, we should. But it's the gospel of peace. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Fourth, there's a shield called faith. Faith is a shield. He says, take up the shield of faith. It's an action we take again. Um, First of all, the shield is faith. The shield is faith. Why is faith so powerful? He gives the illustration of flaming arrows coming at us, flaming arrows. And instead of looking at the flaming arrows, instead of looking at the enemy, looking at our own ability to fight, we look at God because faith is looking at God. You see all this stuff hand-bending around us, and we look at all the flaming arrows, all the attacks, all the evil that's coming around us. What do we look at? Don't look at that. Look at God. Faith is looking at God because knowing he is the one who has a solution. He's our defender. Faith is looking at God, reliance on God. In this passage that we looked at about Jehoshaphat, when he was surrounded by enemies, he said, I don't know what to do. I don't know if you've ever said that. I don't know. You look at all the things that are happening. Maybe it's in your life personally. Maybe it's in the city. You say, I don't know what to do. My eyes are on you. My eyes are on you. Where does our help come from? From the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Our hope is not in politics, in the military. Our hope isn't in any kinds of things. It must be, our focus must be on God. That's the shield of faith. Shield is faith. What about the function of faith? He says, faith will extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie The Gladiator. How many of you have seen the movie Gladiator? Yeah, one of the most memorable scenes was the opening battle scene. I don't know if you remember this. Opening battle scene where the archers are all lined up on this line, ready to shoot arrows, and they light a trench full of fire. And it goes, whoosh, and they all go in, and they dip their arrows, light them in there, then come up, and all flowing in the air, just shoot them at the enemy. It's spectacular. And I thought, that is really scary. It really was. It's like, wow, that's what they did? Yeah, that's what they did. Picture for a moment. You're on the other side. The arrows are coming. And there's a vapor shield. And every one of those arrows has to go through the vapor shield and extinguished and falls down. That's faith. That's faith. Faith is the vapor shield. Faith is the defense. No matter what is shot at you, your view of God, you're looking at God, your faith is going to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. It won't touch you. Picture that. 
when you read this next time. A supernatural shield of faith. Doesn't mean the flaming arrows won't be shot at you. They will be extinguished so you won't get burned and not hurt. I don't know how many times saints try to light your, your, your house or your, your life on fire. Shield of faith. He said, take up the shield of faith. That's something we actually do. Then there's the helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. It says, take it, receive it. Salvation is a certainty of relationship with God through Jesus. Without salvation, without the certainty of salvation, we cannot stand before the enemy. I don't know if anybody asks you the question ever. It's a question you should think about. And if I ask you this question, if you died tonight, if you died tonight, do you know for sure that you go to heaven? Do you know for sure that you go to heaven? I've asked that some people. Some people say, yeah, I know. Some people say, well, I'm not sure. I hope so or think so. Or you say, suppose you did die tonight and stood before God, and he asked, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? The helmet of salvation is the certainty that we have salvation, that we have that relationship with God. Certainty. And 1 John 5, 11 to 13 says this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. It's the certainty. He's given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son, Jesus, has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, know that you have eternal life. Do you know we're the Christians are the only ones that can answer that with certainty. There's no other religion on earth that guarantees that you have eternal life or nirvana or life after death or whatever. They all just say, I hope, I think, whatever. Christianity stands alone with that helmet of salvation which says you can know that you have eternal life. And it's through Jesus, it's receiving Jesus. And if you're here this morning you've never Ask him to come into your life, forgive your sins, and to take control of your life. Do it today. You can know. That's the helmet of salvation. Salvation is certainty. Saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin and the presence of sin. Then there's the Word of God, which is our sword. We begin with truth and we end with truth. Another offensive weapon. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's this, the word of God. If you don't have one, get it. 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's critical. The word of God is critical. This is alive and living. 
Oh, that we would take time to read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it. This is our weapon of warfare. Critical that we have it. And finally, prayer. When he talks about prayer, he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Prayer. Prayer is where we, we kind of started this about six weeks ago, the prayer. Emphasis on prayer. Because prayer focuses our attention on God. It asks God to accomplish what we cannot accomplish. It acknowledges dependence on God. And that's what God has called us to do and to be. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 of the New Living says, We are human, but we don't wage war with human plans and methods. That's why we're talking about this. We use God's mighty weapons, not mere worldly weapons, to knock down the devil's strongholds. With these weapons, we break down every proud argument that keeps people from knowing God. With these weapons, we conquer their rebellious ideas and teach them to obey Christ. Prayer. Our weapons. God's given us a bunch of weapons to use. And I want to encourage you as, as we enter, we may enter some darker days in the next two, three weeks, month, we don't know. To focus on God and pray. And remember, this is a battle in the spiritual realm that we're fighting. But he hasn't called us to bury our heads in the sand. He said, fight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us not only the marching the weapons to fight and I pray God that you would make us a people of courage Father we, we are in the minority in many ways but with you inside of us greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world and I pray God that you would raise us up as a people of God you give us courage to pray, to believe, to exercise faith. And Father, that we, we know, we know how all this ends someday, but in the middle of this, we are called to fight. And it's not, it's not pleasant at times, but I just pray, God, that in the middle of the battle, you will raise up an army that you, God, would, would help us to understand what our role is. You'd unite us as a church to worship you and to praise you, knowing that we are here for such a time as this. We ask for courage. We ask for encouragement. And for those that are going through very difficult times, I just pray, God, that you would encourage them today, this morning. In Jesus' name. Let's stand.